Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I used to think of the Trinity as a problem to be solved, which I think is a natural reaction because it kind of seems like a math problem, right? Like one plus one plus one equals one. Okay, how does that work? One times one times one, but anyway, still it's natural, I think, to look at the doctrine of the Trinity and to think this is just a problem to be solved. But from the ancient time, Christian theologians have regarded the Trinity less as a problem to be solved and more as a mystery to be adored. This is not just some doctrine that has been imposed on the scriptures. And there's this notion sometimes that we just made up the idea of the Trinity. It never says Trinity anywhere in the Bible, and so we must just be making this up. Nothing can be further from the truth. In fact, if you go back to the scriptures, to the very earliest pages, indeed to the first verses of the Bible, the Trinity is already there. We read that creation account from Genesis 1, and theologians would point out there, in those first three verses, you have God the Father. You know, in the beginning, God, God the Father, God created. Hovering over the waters is the Spirit of God right there. And then God creates, and how does he create? He says, let there be light. In other words, he creates by his word, by speaking. And the Gospel of John begins by saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So there's Jesus too. All three persons of the Trinity in the first three verses of the Bible. Thanks, guys. It's been good. Um, I'm all done now at this point. I can do that. That's simple. Even still, I think is more important than us just thinking about the, the fact of the Trinity is the significance of it. Because i got to say, for many of us who think of the Trinity, if we think of it at all, as the name of a church, Right? Or again, just one of those abstract ideas in Christianity that doesn't really have anything to do with with how I live my life of faith. I want to make the case for you this morning that in fact, there is a vital significance to God's three-in-oneness, his Trinitarianness. And there's different ways that we could look at that or, or make that case, but I want to do it by asking another question, a question that I think arises out of that Genesis text, that creation account. It's a simple question, but one perhaps that we don't give too much thought to. The question is this, why did God create? Why did God create? Why did the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make the heavens and the earth? What was his original reason and rationale for making something rather than leaving there be nothing? Now, there can and are lots of different answers that are given to that question. I want to ponder some of them this morning and think more deeply about why it is that God might create. And in answering that question, I think we'll see at the same time the significance of his Trinitarianness, of his being three in one. So why did God create? Now, I ask this question to my confirmands every year at the beginning of the year, and I'm not going to throw them under the bus here, okay? But they answer the same way that many people answer. When you say, why did God create? That first response, first reaction is to say, well, obviously, because he was lonely, right? There's only one God, we always say that, and if there's only one God, it must get kind of lonely. And some of you will remember this lame song from the 90s, you know, what if God was one of us? And there's a line in there that says, up in heaven all alone, nobody calling on the phone. It's like, oh, poor God. 
It's so lonely up there. And so he makes the heavens and the earth and all of you and me. Now, spoiler alert, this is not why God created. But we do have to say that there's kind of an intuitive logic to this, isn't there? I mean, you think about if you were an only child. Some of you were only, only children. And only children are, you know, given to inventing imaginary friends, right? It's like, gosh, I'm just so lonely. I need somebody around here. And so you make an imaginary friend. Not just only children do this. We all might do that. But especially only kids. Well, so if God's the only God, I mean, he can't just make imaginary friends. He can make real friends. He's the omnipotent God of the universe. He's like, you know what? I'm going to make some real critters here. We'll get some three-toed sloths up in this, right? Some giraffes. And yes, humanity as well. Like I say, there's a kind of intuitive logic to it. But why is that not the answer to this question of, of why God created? Well, first, I think if we can put it at like just a psychological level, and forgive me for putting it this way, but to say God's lonely makes him sound kind of codependent, right? It's like God is just this anxious mass up in the heavens, like, oh, gosh, it's tough up here. You guys need me, don't you? I hope that you need me as though that were really God's attitude, the God of all creation. But more importantly, and more to the point of this day, to say that God was lonely, and that's why he created, gives short shrift to his nature as three in one. God as Trinity. See, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, so to speak, a holy family. And within that holy family, there is perfect happiness and harmony. There's a continuous communion there already. Already there's a perfect satisfaction and peace within the, the persons of the Trinity in ways that we can't wrap our mind around, sure, but there's no question that God was not lonely from the foundations of creation, perfectly satisfied within God's own self. And so to say God created was he, because he was lonely misses the fact that God is Trinity. Doesn't need us. He's not that weak. Okay, then, we need another answer. So there's a second answer that goes in kind of the opposite direction. It says, okay, God doesn't create because he's weak, because he, he just needs some company, he's lonely. No, he creates for his glory. Not because he needs company, but because he wants praise and adulation and worship. And this answer, unlike that first one, has a really robust biblical basis to it. You start to read the scriptures, if you just you know, break out your concordance and you search glory, it's all throughout you look throughout the scriptures, God's glory comes up again and again and again to give you just a few references. Isaiah 43, God says, I created them for my glory. Psalm 19, well-known verse, says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to God be the glory. This idea of God's glory is a through line throughout all of the scriptures. And not only that, it is a natural and appropriate, a necessary response for us as humans to glorify God, to magnify him, to praise and to worship him. It is meet and right for us so to do. But you know, it's one thing to say that glory is a natural response to God's greatness. It's another thing to say that that was the reason that he created. And let's think for a second, what might be some of the limitations, the weaknesses of that response. We say, God created for his glory to kind of show, hey, check it out. I'm the God of all creation. Pretty sweet, right? Can somebody point me which way to the gun show? You know? <laughs> I do that with my kids. They're not impressed. They're not, they're not impressed. 
And I'm making light of it, but there is a sense that like, if, if we talk of God is creating and everything, what he wants so bad is for people to, to worship him, it gives you the sense that God is almost like an insecure tyrant, right? It's like, love me, worship me, shower me with praise. But once again, even more important than that is to bring it back to God's Trinitarian nature. And the scripture speaks of within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit glorify one another. A few weeks ago, we heard the gospel reading Jesus' prayer in John 17. He prays to the Father, Father, glorify me as you have glorified me from the foundation of creation. There's that glorifying within God's own self. He doesn't need the glorying of, of people. And the scriptures speak this way too. Uh, Psalm 50, for example. God says, if I were hungry, would I tell you? All creation is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. And so in the last analysis, whether we say that God creates because he needs company, he's lonely, or whether we say he creates because he, he wants glory, he desires that praise, in both of those instances, both of those answers are really, while they might seem different, two sides of the same coin. They're both expressing this notion that there's some lack in God, that God is lacking in some way, and that's why he created. And yet, that's not who God is. That's inimical to his very nature, which is perfectly satisfied and sufficient in himself. So, if it's not because he's lonely, and it's not for glory, why would the Holy Family bring forth the families of the earth? Well, I've used that analogy of a holy family, and it is an analogy, it's a metaphor, but one of my spiritual gifts is pushing metaphors too far. So, bear with me, think about this for just a second, if we can extend that analogy of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a family. Within a family, within a husband and wife, in the best of situations, why do husbands and wives bring forth children? Because they delight in one another. Because they love each other, and out of that overflow of love, they want to bring forth more people into the world that they can share that love with. Now again, some of you will say, well, I grew up on a farm, and we just needed more free labor, okay? That's why we had kids. But even then, at its essence, at its core, God has said, be fruitful and multiply. It's out of that overflowing love that families bring forth more life. How much more? When it comes to the three-in-one almighty creator of all things, that holy family, God brings forth life. He creates, not because he needs glory, not because he, he needs company because he's lonely. He creates not out of lack, but out of abundance. Why did God create? Because he had overflowing love. Because of his overflowing love. So filled with delight. And it's a delight that we heard in that creation account. And thanks for bearing with me and, and going along with that as we were saying it. Because you can hear, just reading Genesis 1, of God's delight in all that exists, right? It is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. It's like a kid in a candy store, right? It's like, oh my gosh, look at this glorious universe. It is wondrous, it is beautiful. He brings it forth simply because his heart is overwhelmed and overflowing with love and joy and delight. And the great St. Augustine, in his inimical way, in, 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 you can't imitate him, is the word I was trying to say, <clears throat> puts it this way. He says, oh God, you made creation 
not because you needed it, but from the fullness of your goodness. From the fullness of your goodness. Now think a little bit more about why that's good news. God has created us, not because he needed anything from you and me, and not because we can even offer anything to him. He created you, he made you, he redeemed you, simply and solely because you are his. He delights in you more than parents over a newborn. Delights in your sheer existence and presence. His love is overflowing like a river that is flooding its banks, and you and I are swept up into that love and are able to simply be with him. So I love baby baptisms, especially. Because Scarlett, Scarlett, you're very sweet. We love you. You're not helping out around the house, right? You're not pulling your weight around here, at least not yet. You're contributing poop and some cuteness. And yet we love you. We planned that beforehand. So. She's beloved because she is. You are beloved by God because he is the one who has made you and you can rest in his love. For some of you, for some of you, you might not view existence itself as a joy, as a gift. Perhaps you're in a dark season where you're wondering, is it even better that I not exist than that I do? Please hear and know that the creator, the triune God of the universe delights in your existence. He's happy you're here. And he gives to us as the, the culmination of creation, the Sabbath day. And what's the point of the Sabbath day? Just rest. Rest in my love, he's saying. And not just don't do work, but like delight in the presence of God. Delight in all that he has made. Enjoy this festivity of being. And I want to give you one last phrase as we close. We've asked this question, why did God create? And there's two ways of looking at that. One way is to think of it as what was God's originating reason? What was his rationale for making in the beginning? But another way of looking at that question, why did God create, is what is his ultimate goal or aim? What's his purpose in creating? He creates in the beginning out of that overflowing love, out of that full delight. But ultimately, he creates for, I want to say, conviviality. Oh, that word's on the front of your uh, bulletin. Some of you are already asking me, is that in English? I don't know that word. It comes from a poem, a short poem by my guy Wendell Berry, who said this. He said, to sit and look at light-filled leaves may let us see or seem to see far backward as through clearer eyes to what unsighted hope believes. The blessed conviviality that sang creation's seventh sunrise. Time when the maker's radiant sight made radiant everything he saw, and everything he saw was filled with perfect joy and life and light. Blessed conviviality. It comes from a, a Latin root, the word convivial. Um, you can kind of see if you put it together, con, which means with, and vivial, vivare, which means to live, to live with, that life together, the joy of life in community. And the word literally means in Latin, to feast. A convivium is a feast. 
What has God created us for? This blessed conviviality, this feast of being, of living in the presence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, of delighting in this world that he has made, of recognizing that it is good, it is good, and it is very good. It's a feast that he invites you and me to join him in here at this table, the feast of his very body and blood, which is just a foretaste of the feast that is yet to come. So that as we go out from this place, we would have new eyes to see this world and life in this world as good, as very good, as lived under the blessing and the presence of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has swept you up into his love so that each and every day you would open your eyes and say, thank you. Too often, I think we look at life as a problem to be solved. I know that I do. Not least the doctrine of the Trinity, another problem to be solved. But when we see the mystery of God as Trinity, we see that no, this life is a gift to be received. It's a feast to be enjoyed. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand for prayer.